Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello and welcome to show 220. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. I hope so. Hey, honestly, thank you so much for... The comments from last week's Meta Show has just been staggering, honestly. I'll get into a little bit more about reactions in the Meta Show, from the Meta Show. I'll give you a little heads up before that, though, what's coming in today's show. First off, we're going to kick off with the main fiction, and it's a three-part serial by Cory Doctor with a fantastic story. The Martian Chronicles, part one. Look out for that. Then we have a promo from our very own... Amy H. Sturgis. Amy is, as mentioned in the Meta Show, doing a live video looking back in genre history in February. And we've got a little promo for that as well. Sherlock and science fiction. And this month, we're kind of making everything kind of Sherlocky. You know, it's on the BBC, Sherlock. Did anyone watch it? Has anyone watched it? Fantastic. We have got, which is, I'm guessing now it's pretty rare, we've got a three-part serial called... Exit Centre Stage, and this is part one, and it was recorded, I'll, I'll get into that as well, but about 15 years ago, and our good friend Peter Seaton clark has been involved with that, but I'll tell you all about that when it comes up. Then we have, finally, to round it all off, the movie soundtrack by David Raglan. That is today's show. Do hope you'll stick around and enjoy it. <laughs> First off, though, a little reaction to the Meta Show. Again, thank you so much. And throughout the show, I'll be kind of dropping into that Meta Show and giving a little thoughts and little kind of ideas what's going on as well. But honestly, thank you so much. And thank you, you know, if anyone's donated, listen to that Meta Show and donated. <laughs> oh, God. Give you a big, big hug. Thank you so much. First of all, I've got to want to mention, just before we get in the Corey Doctorow Show, of part one of Corey's Martian Chronicles, is the Hugo Awards is open again. And, you know, Starship Sova is open there for a nomination. So if you can do, don't forget, there you go. There's your chance now. We've now been put, I think it's kind of in, a, you know, with the kind of controversy all for best fanzine and everything like that now. They've, they've come up with a new thing called Best Fan Cast and any non-professional audio or video casting with at least four episodes. Well, I think that's Starship's over there, so we don't mind bunching over and sharing the fan cast instead of the best fanzine. Same thing, to be quite honest. You know, I don't know what all the fuss is about, but some people think it's a little bit, you know... Audio is not, not a fan show. But anyway, there you go. 
But saying that with the, the kind of Hugo Ballets, I think this story with Cory Doctorow is, you know, the Martian Chronicles, well up there for a Hugo Award as well, best novella. Do think about that. Do think about some of the stories we've played on the show. You know, that would be fantastic if we could get somebody, or one of the writers we've featured as well. This story here is fantastic. This story came from Jonathan Strand's collection, Life on Mars Anthology as well. And Jonathan's up there as well. He can actually be best fan cast as well with his podcast. And also, you know, short editor as well. Don't forget our good friend Jonathan. And, you know, got to sometimes thank, you know, take our hats off to Jonathan because he's been so kind letting, letting me use, you know, the stories as well. So there you go. So this story, by the way, is narrated by Jeff Lane. And like I say, I just want to, you know, it's not actually, it's not, no, it's not, it's not Jeff I want to thank. It's Mrs. Lane letting him get away with spending so many hours over the Christmas holidays recording this story. Jeff, you've got a million to one wife there. Thank you so much. I would have gotten, oh, I don't know if I'm going to pull that one off. But Jeff, honestly, thank you so much. And it is you know, a fantastic narration. Pop over to Jeff's site as well as a link on to Jeff's site. Jeff, what can I say? Thank you so much. Look out next week will be part two of this fantastic story. And then the week after part three. So there you go. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present The Martian Chronicles, part one. By Cory Doctorow. They say you can't smell anything through the launch hood, but I still smelled the pove in the next seat as the space attendants strapped us into our acceleration couches and shone lights in our eyes and triple-checked the medical readouts on our wristlets to make sure our hearts wouldn't explode when the rocket boosted us into orbit for transfer to the Eagle and the long, long trip to Mars. He was skinny, but not Normal skinny, the kind of skinny you get from playing a lot of sports and taking the metabolism pills your parents got for you so you wouldn't get teased at school. He was kind of pot-bellied with scrawny arms and sunken cheeks, and he was brown-brown, like the brown mom used to slather on after a day at the beach covered in Factor 500 sunblock, only he was the kind of all-over even brown that you only got by being born brown. He gave me a holy crap I'm going to Mars smile and a brave thumbs up, and I couldn't bring myself to snub him because he looked so damned happy about it. So I gave him the same thumbs up, rotating my wrist in the strap that held it onto the armrest so that I didn't accidentally break my nose with my own hand when we clawed our way out of the gravity well. This was a phrase from the briefing seminars that they like to repeat a lot. It had a lot of macho going for it. The pove smelled like garbage. There, I said it. No nice way of saying it like the smell out of the trash chute at the end of our property line. It had been my job to haul our monster-sized tie-and-toss bags to the curb every day and toss them down that chute and into the tunnel system that took them out to the Spruce Sunset Meadows Recycling Center, which was actually outside the Spruce Sunset Meadows wall, all the way in Springville, where there was a gigantic mega-prison. The prisoners sorted all our trash for us, which was good for the environment, since they sorted it into about 400 different categories for recycling, and good for us because it meant we didn't have to do all that separating in our kitchen. On the other hand, it did mean that we had to have a double cross-cut shredder for anything like a bill or a legal document so that some crim didn't use it to steal our identities when he got out of jail. I always wondered how they handled the confetti that came out of the shredder, if they had to pick up each little dot of it with their fingernails and drop it into a big hopper labeled paper. Mom and Dad were forward in the adults' cabin, where they were being served fake Nobu champagne. No one was allowed to touch alcohol for 72 hours before lift, 
This was also from the briefing and had been accompanied by graphic images of free-fall vomit. Far from the howling, spitting kiddelies. The announcement played twice, once in English and once in simplified English for the foreigners. Simplified English had been new to me when I entered the program, but I soon got used to it. Words of one or two syllables drawn from a vocab of 5,000 or so. I sometimes even found myself chatting in it over dinner with my parents, which drove them crazy. But simplified was the official mission language, which had been created by Mars Corp in its charter, on the sensible grounds that we couldn't have a new world with a hundred stupid, complicated languages, but English was as stupid and complicated as they come. The tough coughs as he plows the dough. So simplified was the right compromise. The Pove listened close to both sets of announcements, like he was anxious to learn real English so he could stop being such a Pove. But I knew it was a lost cause. Poves are Poves are Poves. Once you're born a Pove, you get all the lessons of being a Pove. The idea that the world owes you a living, that you can just get by being lazy and begging. And it's nearly impossible to unlearn that lesson. But he'd have to if he was going to make it on Mars. No handouts on Mars, Pove. They played the liftoff countdown through the PA in the cabin, and at first we all laughed and counted down with it, like it was New Year's Eve. Ten. Nine. Eight. But by four, no one was counting along. The whole ship was rumbling like a dragon, shaking slightly, feeling full of potential, like it had legs coiled underneath it and was getting ready to jump, which it was. And when it did, three, we would be underway on a one-way journey to an alien world, and we would never see the green hills of Earth again. At two, I started crying. Really bawling, though I couldn't tell you why. Screw the Earth, anyway, the crummy old planet with its environmental belly aching, its teeming anthills of poves and refugees and crazy religion people with their suicide bombs. But it was Earth, my Earth, my homeworld, and... One! I wasn't the only one crying. We were all sobbing, and the only reason it didn't sound like a nursery school before nap time was that the engines were so damned loud, you couldn't hear it if you threw back your head and screamed as loud as you could. The pove next to me was crying too, and I wonder if his parents were forward, or whether he was one of the orphans the Mars Charity put on board the ship to show what a great bunch of people they all were. We all were. And then we were boosting. It was like a thousand hands on every centimeter of me, pushing as hard as they could, even on the back of my throat, on my tongue, on my nose, on my lungs. And it didn't stop. It got worse and worse and worse. And then everything went black. The next thing I knew, the pressure was off, and I seemed to be falling in no particular direction. I had just enough time to open my eyes and see the loose ends of my face mask straps floating around my head and think, free fall. And then my stomach decided to send everything it had up to have a look at the wonder of space travel. I gagged and tried to pitch forward, but the straps held me in. Mars Inc. had anticipated this, of course. Us kiddlies hadn't eaten or drunk anything for 24 hours. The grown-ups ate like hogs, but... They had the anti-nausea injections that weren't kid-safe. My stomach was practically empty, except for some stringy green mucus and bile that tasted like, well, it tasted like puke. And it burned in my throat and sinuses. 
A little escaped my lips and floated up to my nose and back down my throat, and I started to choke. I wasn't the only one. Lots of people were making gagging noises and choking noises. The blob of puke was lodged in my windpipe, and I could only get whistling sips of air past it, and I was seeing stars. There weren't any space attendants nearby, and even though I was mashing the call button, I couldn't hear anyone rushing to my aid. Then there were small, calloused fingers at my straps, undogging my shoulders, arms, wrists, forehead, so that I could lean forward, the falling feeling worse than ever, my stomach churning. A small, strong fist thumped me between the shoulders, and I coughed convulsively, and the puke was back in my mouth, and I spat it out, and I saw it wobble away like a jellyfish. It was only then that I saw whose small hands had been on me. The Pove, who had somehow slipped his bonds and had hooked his foot through one of his straps so that he was able to maneuver while floating above me. He smiled at me as my puke jellyfish hit him in the chest, leaving a splotch like a greasy paintball hit. You okay? He said. He had a funny convenience store clerk accent, clipped but somehow liquid. Fine, I said, and it came out with a rasp from my burning throat. He had drifted so that he was upside down, his face bobbing centimeters from mine. Thanks. I was disoriented. He had toothpaste breath. It made me conscious of the fact that my breath smelled like a dead bear's butthole. He put a hand out. Vijay Mukherjee, he said. David Breon Oglethorpe Smith, I said. He snorted. I was used to that. I waited until he'd finished snickering and said, The third... It's true. Great-granddad had been the first, converted from Brian to Brion by a marine induction sergeant who couldn't spell, and I was the third to bear his name. It was silly and long and weird, but it was mine, and no one else had a name like it, except dad and great-granddad, of course. I still felt like I was falling, but it wasn't as unpleasant as it had been, and I could see where it would stop feeling like falling and start feeling like flying eventually. Thanks, I said, and sorry, gesturing at his stained shirt. He waved off my apology. Think nothing of it. We're going into space together, my friend. We can't let little things get to us. He shook my hand again. He had callous fingers, but a soft handshake, limp and a little damp. Everyone I knew shook hands like they meant it. But this pove, Vijay had rescued me from my choking and hadn't put up a fuss when I puked on him. A nasty part of me wondered if his slum or whatever wasn't carpeted in worse things than puke. I could live with a damp handshake. The space attendant finally showed up and demanded to know what we were doing out of our straps, and then didn't want to listen when he explained. The spacer, who floated through the air with the greatest of ease, strapped us back in without missing a word in his lecture on shuttle safety. I turned my head to look at Vijay, and I could see that he was doing the same. Thanks again, I said, my voice muffled by my mask, which reeked of barf. He gave me another thumbs up, and then we boosted again, and were pushed back into our chairs. Debarking at Eagle's Nest Station was a lot simpler than boarding had been on Earth. The space attendants swarmed us and bound us wrist and foot to our neighbor with soft bungee cords and chains of ten kids. Then they simply grabbed the lead kid and towed the whole chain up along the length of the shuttle, through grown-up territory, through the airlock, and into the station's mustering area. 
We were cut loose, and then each of us was issued a set of one-size-fits-all Velcro gloves and slippers, and we struggled into them, some of us flying off into the low ceiling, which might as well have been the floor, except that no one was standing on it at the moment. It was all pretty chaotic. Every few seconds, ten more colonists came through the airlock, pushing us all further in, and anyone who wasn't Velcroed down drifted away, and it soon became clear that there just wouldn't be enough room in the mustering area for all of us. But more people started coming out, and I couldn't find Mom or Dad in the press, and then Vijay plucked his way along the carpet to me and said, Come on, it's too crowded on this wall. Let's stand on one of the others. Which sounded like a crazy plan, but I couldn't say exactly why. So we pushed off together and grabbed the ceiling with toes and hands, laughing as we skidded and ripped around until we were standing upside down, relative to everyone else, though I still felt like I was falling in every direction at once. At first, people stared at us in that familiar, hey, you stupid kids, cut it out way. But as soon as the room grew more and more crowded, many of the other kids and then some of the grown-ups joined us on the ceiling. I knew some of the other kids from orientation. There was the big, butchy, red-haired boy who liked to mouth off, but who was looking as pukey as I felt. There was the shy girl with the incredible movie star face and its big, wide-set violet eyes, who wasn't looking shy at all now but was looking, frankly, unashamedly at the upside-down adults below her, peering through the seaweed tangle of hair that floated around her head. There was the dreamy girl who never turned her earphones off. You could tell, even though they were implants, because she was always doing this head-bobbing thing to the rhythm. Now, wide awake and plucking her way across the ceiling on her hands, feet brushing the hair of the adults below. I spotted Mom and Dad just before the space attendants pushed through the last tensum and dogged the airlock. As it sealed, the air pressure in the room changed slightly, and I realized with a shiver that the funny-looking door I'd passed through wasn't just a door. It was a door between two spaceships, and that the only thing that had stopped me from being sucked into space, where my lungs and eyeballs would explode while my body turned into a freeze-dried popsicle, had been some accordioned metal, rubber, and plastic. And now that was gone, and the shuttle that lifted us to Eagle's Nest was floating through that same void. The same void that I was going to spend the next six months sailing through in a tin can whose thin skin would be all that stood between me and total asplosion. A space attendant, standing sideways, sticking out of the wall like a thumbtack, touched an invisible button on her workspace, and a two-note whistle sounded. Colonist, attention, please! Her voice was amplified and came from every corner of the room. It was the same system they used in orientation. The room's camera knew where the speaker was and turned an array of directional mics to follow them so that you could speak without the inconvenience of a mic. Colonists, she said again when the chatter barely dimmed. It was as loud as a rocket engine, well, not quite, from all the talking. She twiddled an invisible knob using some hand jive the ship's computer understood. "'Colonists?' she said again, her voice so loud it actually made me want to go to the toilet as it vibrated the poo I hadn't realized was lurking in my colon. The silence was thunderous. My ears rang. "'Welcome to Eagle's Nest,' she said. "'I am Laney. Just Laney. As in, Laney Laney, no complainy. I am your mommy for the next six glorious months aboard the Eagle.' 
and it will be my job to head off any potential strife before it rises to the level of a complaint. We live by a strict no-whining ethic on Mars. That's why you signed up to go, and it's never too soon to start practicing. She gestured at the kids and the few adults on the ceiling. I see that some of you have already gotten into the no-complainy state of mind and solved your own problems by your own wits. Good people of Upside Down Land, I salute you. She ripped off a perfect Navy salute. Her uniform was vaguely naval, though Mars Colony didn't have a Navy or an Army. It had a security force, of course, contracted for out of the colonial fees, and charged with enforcing our mutual code of conduct and respect. Belaney didn't talk like one of the meatheads who worked security around Mars Inc. properties. She talked like a Marsy, smart and confident and assertive, like my parents and all their friends. Now, we are just about ready to move you from the nest straight onto the eagle. We've been making her ready for days now, and she is just in her final inspection from the International Space Agency. She squeaked out International Space Agency in a pinched, cartoony voice, the way every Martian did. No one liked the pencil pushers at the ISA with all their stupid rules. And then we can get you aboard. We didn't quite anticipate this delay, and unfortunately there's no way we can let you wander around the nest. This is a working job site, and there's no way you could safely be permitted to move about freely, much as we'd like to. She drew a breath and said in one long word, Mars Inc. deeply regrets the inconvenience, and grinned. More than a few people chuckled at her. Phrases like, deeply regrets the inconvenience, were the kind of thing we were going to Mars to escape. It shouldn't be very long, folks. In the meantime, think happy thoughts, talk amongst yourselves, mingle. These are the people you'll be spending the next six months with. These are the people you'll be sharing a planet with for the rest of your lives. Okay, in admission, I'm not much of a Martian. Martians are supposed to be full of colonial pluck, ready to grab Earth's neighboring planet with both hands and headbutt that mother into submission. And we are the winners, humanity's best hope for surviving once stupid Earth is used up by the poves and the stupids. We're all rich, of course, and that's how you know we're winners. We didn't whine like all the poves who claim that the world owes them a living. We made our own fortunes on Earth, and now we're off to set up a new planet that'll be as great as the Earth could be, if only you left all the whiners out. But I'm not much of a Martian. I'm not much of a winner. I guess that makes me a loser. Here's the thing. My grades are okay, B's and B-pluses, except for a C in American history, which, honestly, I deserve... I think I must have slept through more than half of those classes. I would have given me a D-. Here's the thing. I'm not the popular kid. I'm not even the popular kid's best friend. I'm the kid that the popular kid's best friend used to play with before he made friends with the popular kid. I'm not last picked for teams, but I'm the last picked from the kids who aren't total spazzes or fat or handicapable or whatever. Here's the thing. The only place I'm not a loser is when I'm playing Martian Chronicles, the Mars Colony game that I've lived, breathed, eaten, and shat for the past five years. The reason for that is that I am a stone Martian Chronicles monster freak. I can play MC for 18 hours without coming up for air 
bringing it with me to the toilet and the table. There's something that just fits in the game, which sounds kind of boring from the outside. You're a Mars colonist, and you have to build your homestead, sell your wares and services, work to elect sympathetic officials, or become an official yourself, and try to get your neighbors to see things your way when it comes to the day-to-day running of Ares City. Boring, right? Wrong. The game is all about figuring out what everyone else wants and how to make them feel like they're getting it, even though you're really the one getting what you want. I have a huge fortune in MC. I'm a Raygun millionaire. The Mars Inc. company script, our money, is called the Raygun, or the Martian Raygun if you're feeling formal. There's even a Raygun on every bill, stylized and old-fashioned and cool. Not real money, but I know that if I can do it in MC... I'll be able to do it on Mars, and then I won't be a loser anymore, and I'll be a real Martian. I'm self-aware enough to know how pathetic this sounds, and I'm pathetic enough that I don't care. The eagle took on her passengers after three long hours stuck in the eagle's nest mustering area. For a group of no-whiners, there was a lot of complaining about the strange, lengthy time stuck there in zero-g, not technically zero, as orientation had reminded us, just microgravity. But I couldn't tell the difference, waving back and forth in the air recirculator's breeze like a bed of sea kelp. They whined about the wait. They whined about the line for the toilet. Then they saw the toilet, a kind of gigantic vacuum cleaner you stuck your whole ass into, and they whined about that. The only ones who weren't whining were the kids who were hanging from the ceiling and the adults who joined us. We were having too much fun in upside-down land to worry about the toilets or the weight, and there was plenty of room on the roof. "'What's your corp?' the girl with the violet eyes said with no preamble at all. She was asking about Martian Chronicles, specifically what my corporate affiliation was in-game, that is, what team I played for. "'DBOS Corp.' I said casually. She had thrown up on the shuttle, too. I could tell by the flecks of dried puke down the front of her shirt. She nodded sagely. I hear good things about it, but isn't it a hard company to ladder up in? Super competitive? I don't really need to worry about that, I said. I'm the CEO. It didn't come out as casual as I'd hoped because I caught someone's floating gelatinous sneeze in the eye, and I said it, ending up twitching and flinching away. She cocked her head at me. If you're lying, I'll find out as soon as we get to our cabins, and then I'll spend the next six months making fun of you. I held up two fingers in an obsolete Boy Scout salute. I swear by Ares, God of War. May he strike me down with, uh, lightning? I wasn't really clear on what Ares, the Greek name for Mars, did in the course of his war-godly duties. Okay, that's impressive. Seriously? Said a voice a few centimeters over my head. I looked up and found Vijay floating in space just above. Okay, I'm going to stop with the above and over and below quotes. There was no up or down, okay? That is fantastic. Really top hole. He had taken off his light jacket and twisted it into a rope with one of his Velcro gloves safety pinned to the end of the sleeve and stuck to the bulkhead surface. In effect, he'd created an anchor line and was using it to fly around the middle of the room like a superhero. Violet Eye's face twisted up like, Who's that pove? And I said, This is Vijay. He flies, apparently. Vijay stuck his hand out, and she took it. Helene Gonzalez Ginsburg, she said. I'm Dave, I said, feeling like I was falling behind. Dave Smith, 
Vijay said, inches from my ear. I should have made the connection when you told me your name. Well, that is interesting. What corp do you work for? Helen said pointedly. Oh, he said airily. I work for the Auditor General. Now it was my turn to boggle. The AGs were one of the exalted heights that every player secretly aspired to. They only recruited players with absolutely, positively impeccable reps and gave them the power to kick open the doors of any corp, any meeting, and go over its books with a fine-toothed comb and confiscate any money that wasn't properly accounted for. They could take away your corporate charter, bust your character down to the bottom rank. You didn't get to be an AG without playing a long, hard, tight game that made you a lot more friends than enemies. I was a pretty top dog, but Vijay was a minor god. Whoa. Work for? Helene said. What does that mean, work for? You snitch for them for money? No, he said. I'm a senior auditor. We both boggled. A bit of drool actually attained separation and liftoff from my lip, forming a glossy sphere that drifted off towards one of the air research vents. Senior auditor. He wasn't just a god. He was a major god. Suddenly I felt very self-conscious. Vijay could buy or sell us all ten times over in MC. But then I realized that I could probably buy and sell Vijay ten times over in real life. It's a kind of nasty, ungenerous thought, but it made me feel better. And worse. Of course, he said. That's all just for another three months. Three months. Turn around. In three months, we'd stop facing Earth, and the ship would spin around to face Mars. In three months, we'd be closer to Mars than to Earth, and the light speed lag will have hit a brutal 100 seconds, making the game almost unplayable. So, in three months, the ship's network array will cut over to Mars, and we'll all start fresh. New characters on the Mars server. Yes, Martian Chronicles is big on Mars. Yes, they actually play a Life on Mars simulator on Mars. Except, of course, on Mars, it means something because the best lessons learned on Mars server are actually turned into policies for Mars government. In three months, we'd all start over as noobs in Martian Chronicles, and three months after that, we'd touch down and we'd all be noobs on Mars. I was abandoning DBOS Corp. Vijay was abandoning his position as senior auditor. Thousands of hours flushed down the toilet. Who do you play for, Helene? I asked. She grinned, not looking shy at all anymore. I'm a raider, she said. We both drew back from her involuntarily, and I lost my balance and ended up standing on my head for a moment while I sorted myself out. A raider? They were the scum of Mars. They'd borrow a giant amount of money and use it to buy up a majority share of a corp. Then they'd vote that the corp should take on their debt. Then they'd sell off all the corp's assets to pay the debts, leaving behind a hollow shell, sucked as dry as a bug in a spider's web. It was great for the investors who loaned the Raiders their initial stake. They could take millions of players' hours worth of work and turn it into a nice, fat bank balance for themselves. Was it legal? Well, no one would send you to jail for it. And it was an open secret that some of the biggest corps had been founded by or had bankrolled Raiders. If an auditor caught Raiders in the act, they could bust up the party, but it was all part of the game. That didn't change the fact that I was instantly tempted to punch Helene in her movie star nose and then push her out the airlock. She giggled. 
<laughs> you should see the look on your face. Come on, it's just a game. They always said that. Besides, maybe I'll change my ways when we hit Apogee. Start clean on Mars as a goody-two-shoes corporate worker bee. Vijay nodded. And maybe I'll be a raider, he said. I swallowed. I wanted to say something like, I will be a CEO. I always have been a CEO. It's all I ever wanted to be. But it's just a game didn't allow me to say anything like that. There was one place in the world, and off the world, where I wasn't a loser, and that was in the Martian Chronicles. I'd come to grips with the fact that I was going to have to abandon my beautiful, perfect corporation in 90 days, but only by promising myself that I'd start building a new corp on day 91. (laughs) It's just a game, I said. The Eagle had only been finished two weeks before we boarded. The last carpets laid, the last bunks prepared, the last safety checks completed— but it still smelled like people had been sweating freely in its corridors for generations. Smelled like a cross between the locker room and the garbage-filled green canal outside of the wall of Spruce Sunset Meadows on a hot day. The smell, it deserved the capital S, traveled like a sneaky fart into the eagle's nest in small gusts as the colonists passed out in groups of ten through the far airlock, just as they had entered by the opposite airlock. Each time the lock cycled, A little bit more of that toxic air puffed out until the room was choking on putrescence. Dad broke off from the intense conversation he'd been having with his buddies and gestured impatiently for me to join him and led me to the lock. He had a look on his face of steadfast refusal to face reality. He was not going to admit that the spaceship we were about to take up residence in had a smell. We were going to Mars, and it was all going to be so freaking awesome that it was impossible to even take notice of any imperfection, not even a smell with its own capital letter. No whining. Mom took my hand and helped me down on the same local vertical as them, and we Velcro-shuffled our way to the lock, rip, 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 a family hand in hand, with our space bags slung over our shoulders, about to become pioneers, about to leave behind Earth and all its authorities and laws and rules and governments. We were going to a place where we could be free with a capital F, and if free had a smell, so be it. The airlock closed behind us. The equalization hiss was the only sound in the lock. There were ten of us, and I noticed that Vijay was part of our gang and managed to nod at him, and he nodded back. Now that the lock was sealed, we were officially, irrevocably, gone. When the International Space Agency completed its certification tour of the Eagle, they completed their duty to the citizens of Earth's nations, and now they had no more authority over us. No one on Earth did. We were in space, and we were a new human race, free as almost no human being had ever been free. No one had any claim over us, or our work, or our freedom, except for our peers, the people we'd elected to go to an alien world with. We were off to start anew, and we couldn't arrive a moment too soon. Spaceships suck. You probably didn't realize that, but they do. Spaceships are small, cramped, smelly, and crowded. Our cabin, the room that Mom, Dad, and me would spend the next six months in, was smaller than the mudroom at home, where we took our boots and coats off before going into the house. All the furniture folded away into the walls, and there was no toilet or shower. 
we had to share the communal toilets at the end of the hallway. Supposedly, there was one toilet for every six people, which someone had calculated was optimal. At home, we had four toilets for three people, not counting the one in the basement. And anyway, Helene did a count once we were underway and calculated that there was one toilet for every 12 people, not that any of the grown-ups would listen to her. The toilets had a double smell, that putrid human smell that got worse, not better, as time went by, as though my nose was bravely refusing to get used to it, sacrificing itself by insisting on staying totally revolted by it, so that I would know that I should get out ASAP, and the lesser smell of the air freshener that squirted constantly out of the little misters around the giant vacuum cleaner head that we stuck our butts into. That was like the smell of bubblegum times one million, and it clung to your clothes after you used the head so that you smelled it for hours. Yes, we were pioneers. Pioneers had never had it very comfortable. They drove covered wagons across America, my dad said. They were killed by bandits, by Indians, by disease. They starved. They baked. They froze. They drowned. Dad's grandparents came to America from Spain and Holland. They were middle-class architects who met at university and married and moved to San Diego because they wanted to live by the Pacific Ocean, and they did, for most of their lives, retiring to Arizona, just before most of San Diego ended up underwater. The closest anyone in my ancestry had come to a covered wagon was a business-class seat on a British Airways 777 to LAX. Yep, I said. They sure did. Nevertheless, Dad, you have to admit that this ship is kind of crappy. None of the carpets are laid straight. Half the doors don't close right. Your bed falls off the wall every time you fold it out. He grinned a little. Yeah, okay, it's not exactly the Queen Mary, but it's not supposed to be. It's supposed to get us from Earth to Mars in one piece. If you don't like the room, there's always the lounge. Junior colonists, yes, seriously, junior colonists, had their own lounges, three of them, one on each deck. These were comparatively large spaces in the center of the ship, where there was almost no gravity. The Eagle was a big spinning donut with lots of centripetal force, which feels a lot like gravity, around the edges, and almost none in the middle. The floaty parts in the middle were mostly shunned by grown-ups, who found them a little ulpy-gulpy, and were prone to losing their lunches in the middle of our play areas. That was just fine by us. The JC lounges were pretty big to start with, but the absence of gravity made them even bigger, because it meant we could use the ceilings, walls, and middle as functional spaces, and we did. At any time of the quote-unquote day, or quote-unquote night, the ship had a 24-hour Martian clock that the colonists stuck to, you'd find them full of kids, most of us in our teens, the little ones had supervised play areas that parents took turns overseeing. We'd be flying around the space with fins on our hands and long bungee cords around our waists, or we'd be tethered to something with our faces masked by goggles and our hands running up and down virtual keyboards suspended in midair. I never gamed with goggles and virtual keyboards at home, but then I never had to. My Martian Chronicles competition had all been physically separated from me, but now... They were literally on every side of me, and if I'd used even a small screen, dozens of people would have been able to shoulder-surf me. "'Good morning, boss,' Helene said, her voice so clear through my headset that she might have been right beside me. Then she tapped me on the shoulder, and I shoved my goggles up on my forehead and realized that she was right beside me, floating in space sideways to me, lazily sculling the air with her hand fins to keep herself from drifting away on the air currents.' 
I suppressed a scowl. Good morning, Helene. Why have we abandoned operational security on this fine day? Helene was supposedly going straight. She had vowed that she would give up raiding forever once we made Mars fall. This had cheered Vijay and I to no end, and, at Vijay's insistence, I had given her some minor status in DBOS Corp so that she could get some experience working for a living instead of destroying things. But she was a total loose cannon. She knew that we only talked business through the game to avoid being overheard. The game had good crypto protecting our conversations, something that was totally lacking in the cheek-by-jowl, by-butt-by-knee atmosphere of the JC lounges. But she wanted to actually talk, face-to-face. You're supposed to have been this big deal raider, I said. How did you survive? You've got the secrecy instincts of an elephant. She shrugged, which caused her to start spinning in slow circles, which she seemed to enjoy. She'd shaved her head on the first day in space and kept it clean to the scalp, something that a lot of the other kids had done since. I suppose I managed to keep it on the down low when it mattered, and ignored it when I didn't. This is exactly the kind of thing that's going to get you into trouble when you go to work for some corp on Mars side. I said, aware that I was lecturing, but unable to stop myself. Companies need to have policies. Employees need to obey those policies. It's fine to have ideas of your own to try to get them circulated within the company and adopted, but you can't just go rogue whenever an idea comes into your shiny bald head. She rubbed her gleaming noggin. She must shave it every day to keep it so shiny. You seriously get off on this? Seriously? Role-playing that you're some big shot in a suit telling other people what to do and amassing a fortune? She'd hinted many times that she thought that straight Martian Chronicles players were suckers and drones, but this was the first time she'd come out and said it to my face. She had that same lazy smile and it didn't seem to be intending offense, but it got my back up. I swallowed a couple times. I get off on making things. I pay a good salary to people to help me create amazing things that succeed, that make money, and make people happy. Making things together requires that you give up some of your individual freedom in order to make the company succeed. If you don't want to do that, you shouldn't take a job. Okay, she said. I won't take the job. Thanks for the memories. She gave no impression of being upset. She never showed much emotion beyond a kind of light-hearted, detached amusement. I was so shocked that I just watched her grab hold of her bungee use it to pull herself to the bulkhead, where she could get her legs coiled under herself, then push off and go sailing through the lounge, dodging and weaving between the players with their goggles and the other flyers, who were generally a lot less reckless than she was. Vijay plucked his way along the wall to me, taking dainty, quick, velcroized steps that seemed ridiculous, but actually got him around the space with a lot of speed and control. What was that? he said, drawing level with me and stopping his motion with a single finger pressed lightly against my shoulder. I became aware that I was snorting hot air from my nose like a cartoon bull with a head cold. I made myself stop. She quit, I said, because I asked her to adhere to court policy. I shrugged my shoulders. I guess there's no helping some people. She must have been born to be a raider. Vijay pressed his lips together and managed to look both disapproving and non-judgmental at the same time. I don't know how he did it, but he did. After a week on the Eagle, Vijay seemed to have worked out where all the angles were. He was bunking in a hardship case dorm with 30 other poves, but he knew which dining room served the biggest portions, which gangways were fastest, which viewing ports were most likely to be free. No one apart from Helene and I talked to him. We might have been the only ones who saw him. 
People's eyes just slid over the poves like they were invisible. Vijay never gave any sign that he minded. He used his invisibility to get into places where he couldn't go, and he always had a fun adventure, what he called a good wheeze, up his sleeve. Well, I suppose you'll have to figure it all out when we get to Mars anyway, he said. As will we all. What does that mean? I know how to build a corp. I've done it before. I'll do it again. But you'll be a different kind of person on Mars than you are on Earth. You'll be an immigrant, a newcomer. You won't have any assets. You will be a pove, if you'll forgive the expression. I had never called him a pove. I was raised better than that, but we both knew he was a pove, and I wasn't. Don't be ridiculous, I said. I can't be a pove. Why not? If you don't have money, you are poor. You have poverty. You are a pove. What a stupid day this was turning out to be. First Helene's temper tantrum, and now Vijay was trying to needle me. In the first place, no one is an immigrant on Mars. An immigrant is someone who comes to your place, your country or planet, to live. But Mars is our country, Mars Inc., and its stakeholders. That's us. Own it. In the second place, a pove isn't someone who's poor. A pove is someone who refuses to stop being poor. They want handouts, not work. Their governments have told them that they have the right to food and shelter, so they want what's theirs by right. Now, I had heard and said these words hundreds of times. They were part of every civics class I had ever taken. They were repeated several times a day through the Mars Inc. orientation. But, I have to say, I never really thought about what it would be like to hear those words if you were a pove. Not until they came out of my mouth on that day. I felt a blush burning in my cheeks. I mean, Vijay, not you, obviously. Obviously you want to work and you want to get out and... See, you did. You're smart and motivated. That's how you became an auditor. It's how you got to be on the Eagle. He cocked his head. Dave, he said, you never asked where my parents were. I swallowed. No, I said. I mean, I figured you had to be an orphan. Oh, yes, I'm an orphan. That's because when I was ten, a Procter & Gamble nutraceutical plant in my village leaked 70,000 tons of toxic fumes into the air. It killed over 95% of people for over 200 kilometers around. Many of them worked at the plant or provided services to the people who did. The company argued that the division that owned the factory was totally separate from Procter & Gamble, even though P&G was the majority stakeholder in it, and its only customer was P&G. Because of this, the Bangladeshi court was only able to render judgment on this separate company, which was practically bankrupt at this point. Luckily, there weren't many of us alive. The ones that lived got enough money to go to good school and not to one of the bad orphanages, where the survival rate is about the same of people living in the toxic plume of a P&G plant. I tried not to show how much this shocked me. It practically skewered me. It was so much goddamn reality. It made everything I knew seem so... Fake. Pointless. Like I'd been complaining about a splinter in my toe, and this guy had both of his feet eaten off by a tiger. So first I felt surprised. Then embarrassed. Then angry, though I didn't know at who or what. Maybe my parents for keeping me from reality? Though hell knew that I wouldn't want to live through what Vijay had been through. Dave, he said, please calm down made me wonder what my face had been doing. I hadn't said anything. I just wanted you to see that people aren't just poor because they're lazy. Some people work as hard as mules every day of the week and die poor. Unbidden, the thought rose to my mind. 
They must be stupid, then. It's not enough to work hard. You have to work hard doing something valuable. Some people work hard as mules and get hit by a bus or a chemical leak. Some people sit around on their fat asses all day and get rich. I saw that some heads turned when he said this. Statements like that one were about the worst thing you could say to a Mars colonist. I knew what I was supposed to say here. It was drilled into me. I said it. If someone figures out how to do more with less, that tells us he's doing something right, and he should be rewarded for figuring stuff like that out. We don't want people just to work harder. We want people to work better. He nodded. Of course, Dave. That's what we're told. But Talene is a raider, and she's figured out ways to get a lot of money without working hard at all, by ruining the hard and valuable work of others. Where does she fit in? I swallowed. I suppose that's why it's not illegal, but... I fumbled for the argument. Lots of people were listening. I felt like I was divulging corporate secrets to my competition, even though nothing we were saying had to do with my business. Just because it's legal doesn't mean it's good. No, Vijay said, but you just said that anyone who figures out how to make more money with less work should be rewarded. I wanted to sink through the floor. I felt like everyone who was listening in could see that I was really just a loser, one of those people who didn't really understand everything that Mars Colony stood for, not in my heart. I should have had some decent arguments right there on the tip of my tongue, but all I had was a shamed, furious blushing. Listen, Pove, said a voice from below me, loud enough to be heard around the room. You're a guest here. Nobody wants to hear your opinion on what successful people deserve or don't deserve. Why don't you just go hang out with your own kind? It was Liam, the red-headed, mouthy kid. He ran an investment bank in Martian Chronicles, moving giant chunks of money around on behalf of big corps and big players. He was always too friendly with me and too loud, but he also managed to make me feel like I had to go along with him or he might punch me in the gut. Not that I'd ever see him be violent. He was just, you know, intense. Vijay nodded his head, not ducking it, but nodding as if Liam was confirming something he'd suspected all along, which somehow made Liam seem like even more of a jackass. As you say, he said, and took off into the middle of the room, using a hard shove to get himself moving and steering himself expertly through the crowd. Liam swiped at his ankle as he passed, but missed. Liam righted himself relative to me so that we were face to face. You need to get a better class of friend, Smith. Judge a man by the company he keeps. You're going to have to get yourself set up again, Marside, and the impression you make on this ship will follow you around for the rest of your life. Just some friendly advice from your banker. You're not my banker, I didn't say. And I also didn't say you're not my friend. And also not. The impression that'll follow you around for the rest of your life is going to be of a big mouth jerk. And also, I didn't say... Vijay's my friend, and I'm proud to be his. Instead, I plastered a smile on my face and waved vaguely at him, and plucked my way along the wall to the hatch, and made for the gravity in the outer rings. And there you go, don't forget, copyright is Mr. Corey Doctorows. That is part one. Join us next week for part two of this fantastic story. Do remember, it's up for a Hugo nomination as well. If you like it, get it voted in. 
Thank you very much. Jeff, thank you, sir. There is a link on the site to the Hugo nomination form there, if you want to fill that in. That's, the link is on the site, the main site. Now, this month, I'm trying to kind of create something all Sherlocky. You know, we'll have a bit of a Sherlock fan, fan whatever. <laughs> Hell's that? But you know what I mean? We have a nice special on Sherlock, you know, and kind of celebrating the BBC's version of Sherlock as well. We are running up to with Amy H. Sturgis's video, you know, kind of live video Sherlock extravaganza in February. We have got some all goodness on Sherlock Holmes, but this I want to play is a promo by Amy just to kind of tell you what's coming in this little event in February. Ames! Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is Amy H. Sturgis. At the time I'm recording this, it is the week prior to the airing of the third and final episode in the second series of the BBC show Sherlock. Twitter, Tumblr, and LiveJournal are on fire with literally thousands of posts speculating about how Stephen Moffat and Mark Gatiss are going to reimagine Arthur Conan Doyle's The Final Problem to become The Reichenbach Fall. This on the heels of a fantastic reworking of The Hound of the Baskervilles last week. I know after The Reichenbach Fall airs, I have friends in five different countries that I have to check in with who, like me, have worn copies of Arthur Conan Doyle at their sides and wine and quite a few tissues waiting to see what happens. This puts me in mind of last summer. I had the good fortune to be invited to speak at several science fiction conventions. And at one of them, when I was sent the schedule of events, I noted that there wasn't any Sherlock Holmes panel. And I contacted the organizers and said, you know, I think that it would be really great to have a Sherlock Holmes then and now panel. And they kindly acquiesced and put me in charge of the panel. But because it was a last-minute edition, we were given the time slot of death, or actually the time slot of double death, because we were scheduled up against... First, the Q&A with the media guests of honor, the opportunity for the science fiction attendees to talk to stars of science fiction television and pose their questions and rub shoulders with these special guests. And we were also put up against the uber-popular Doctor Who panel. So about 10 minutes before the panel began, I wondered if it would pretty much end up being me staring at the wall, uh, talking to myself. But at about two minutes after the time the panel was scheduled to begin, people were still pouring into the room and jockeying for space at the back to lean against the wall because all of the chairs and all of the floor space had already been claimed. All of this goes to say that there is tremendous interest today in different incarnations and iterations of Sherlock Holmes. If you don't believe me, then just look at the sales figures over the last year for novels such as Dust and Shadow, An Account of the Ripper Killings by Dr. John H. Watson by Lindsay Fay, or The House of Silk, a Sherlock Holmes novel by Anthony Horowitz, or the Titan series The Further Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. 
I would submit to you that there is very good reason why science fiction fans, in particular, should take tremendous interest in Sherlock Holmes and his phenomenon. To that end, I would like to invite you to join me for a live looking back into genre history segment, which will run on February eighteenth at three o'clock in the afternoon, Greenwich Mean Time. During which I will discuss the connection between Sherlock and science fiction. It will be live, video as well as audio, so you will get to hear and see me. I don't know if that's particularly a promise or a threat, but there you go. And my presentation will have four parts. The first part will focus on Sir Arthur Conan Doyle as a science fiction writer. And we'll explore his science fiction writings and consider how he infused his Sherlock Holmes novellas and stories with a particularly science fictional sensibility. In the second section, we'll consider how and why other science fiction authors over a century have borrowed Sherlock Holmes for their own genre writings. What is it about the great detective that continues to fascinate and inform creators and consumers of science fiction? I have my theories. That comprises the first half of my presentation. The second half of my presentation will also have two parts. In the first, I'll discuss the unique sub-subgenre that combines the Holmesian world and the universe created by H.P. Lovecraft. So many authors have mixed Sherlock Holmes and the Cthulhu mythos, and I'm going to talk about the authors who've done so, their works, and the reasons why I think these two universes fit so well together. Lastly, I'll look at the ways in which Sherlock Holmes has appeared in other science fiction media, from television series like Doctor Who to Star Trek to other media. And we'll wrap up by discussing the BBC's new critical and popular success, Sherlock, and its science fictional elements. After the presentation, I will take live questions from the audience members. I want to thank Tony so much for inviting me to do this live looking back into genre history segment, and I hope that you will join us. All of the information you need to purchase a ticket and reserve a space for this event can be found at StarshipSofa.com. Thank you so much. There you go. I hope you can join me because I'm just so looking forward to this, you know. And there is such a limited amount of tickets as well. So please, I think we've only got half left. I think there's only ten left at this moment. So, please, if you want to pop over, I would love to see you there. Honestly, this is the kind of, I think, what brings in this community where you can now, you know, the, the kind of the softwares or, the, you know, the, the technology is there where we can just be all over the world and just see each other. And then, like I say, Amy's one of the top, you know, PhD in all this kind of science fiction goodness and knows our stuff inside out. Do you know what I mean? And it's funny how we've been talking. I've been chatting with Amy over the kind of time. And... Just to do it live, I've got so much admiration for Amy. Just to get up and stand up, you know, that, even just doing it on video in front of, you know, in your own room, that for me is gut-wrenching nerves. Do you know what I mean? God, even when I would say we do this show, I was telling Amy, and one listen. 
Not that I was saying that I'm an alcoholic, but that's me Christmas whiskey bottles there. I'll be having a few good gulps of that before I get in front of people. <gasps> but Amy, you can do it. So, Amy, thank you so much. We're looking forward to that. Like, see, if you can, there's links on the website. Do pop over. would love to see you there. Next up is Vintage Cereal in the kind of Sherlock theme, Exit Centre Stage. Now, this actual story, I'll tell you the history about it. It's actually all around Lestrade, the, the kind of police detective in the kind of Sherlock Holmes mysteries. Peter Seaton Clark got in touch with us, and again, a while ago, and said, you know, it's only about 15 years ago, he kind of, you know, you bit of on, on the stage voice actor and you, you kind of know what Pete's like for you can, narrations you know it's just fantastic he did the Titanic James Morrow story just a few months ago Pete's got a great voice but you know when he was treading the boards kind of thing or years back there he got he kind of was involved in this exit center stage and it's narrated by Kenneth Kendall now Kenneth Kendall for UK readers yes that that Kenneth Kendall was a kind of BBC newsreader you know, a long time ago, you know, kind of one of the kind of the backbones of the British broadcasting industry, that's kind of figurehead of the news, it was Kenneth Kendall. And it's also starring Reginald Marsh. Now, Reginald Marsh is, most people, you know, think, who the Reginald Marsh? But he was like the boss in the Terry and June sitcoms, you know, that boss? I, you know, this is a bit of an exclusive, really, when you think about it. And there's also a, a Michael Shard, which is from, who's Grange Hill, which is one of the, you, you, again, you'll recognise, you probably recognise the voice. He was Mr. Bronson in Grange Hill, and he's in Empire Strikes Back as well, or he was in Empire Strikes Back. And what Pete was telling us about this, this serial that we're going to hear, it was actually recorded, you know, in the style of those Penny Dreadfuls. You know, basically very over the top, and a lot of kind of tongue-in-cheek in it. And it certainly isn't kind of what Pete says. I asked him to give us a little bit of heads up on it. It's not meant to be taken seriously, but, you know, this is a bit of a kind of rare scoop for Starships over to get this off, Pete. You know, I don't know if it's, I'm not too sure if it's been played or anything like that. I'm sure it has, you know, in the past, but we'll have to go through the kind of right authorities to get it played, to get it, you know, sorted out. This is, again, as a three-part adaptation. You know, I've got three parts this week, next week, and the week after. And on the final week as well, We've got an interview that Pete carried out with the, the writer of this little centre stage exit, exit centre stage as well, so look out for that. So, the Starship Sofa is very proud to present Exit Centre Stage, Part 1. <laughs> The Seton Clark Organization, MJ Tro and Michael Sheard present Reginald Marsh as Inspector Lestrade and Kenneth Kendall as the narrator in Exit Center Stage, Yarn of the Yard by MJ Tro. Episode 1. The Adelphi had never seen anything like it. Gilbert, Sullivan, Wilde and Cavendish all under one roof. No wonder the great and the good of polite society flocked there that sultry evening in the July of 1893. The production, to raise money for Lady Eveline Ferrer's fund for hopeless alcoholics, such as Lord Ferrer's, was a single night of patience. And for one night only, Lady Ferrer's had assembled a host of talent, professional and amateur, 
to tread the boards for her just cause. And there was someone else there, too, not particularly great, not even very good, and hardly ever polite. Inspector Sholto Lestrade of Scotland Yard sat in row F, seat 29, just behind the pillar, one of those that the rest of society managed to avoid. His dear friends, Letitia and Harry Bandicoot, had asked him to come. Letitia was very good, gliding over the sulphur-lit stage like an angel in frills and furbelows. And Harry? Well, Harry was Harry, really. He had a good tenor voice, but he always seemed to be in the wrong place. And he managed to drop the cloak of the great Cavendish with a small rustle that grew into a thunderous metallic clash as a tea tray went with it. It was at a particularly poignant moment in the play, too. Oscar Wilde, sitting regally in a box with what appeared to be a cat on his head, clapped loudly, braying, Keep it in! Well, it had been a few moments since the entire audience was looking at him. One by one, as the curtain came down, the greats appeared in the greenish glow of the footlights. The legendary Sir Arthur Sullivan took his bow first. How kind! Then William Gilbert carefully circled his co-writer and bowed low. It's nothing, really. The most rapturous applause, however, was reserved for dear Oscar, his buckles flashing in the limelight, the velvet of his breeches sumptuous in its pile. He looked like a walking carpet. I shall, of course, be sure. Finally, Lady Eveline Ferrers, all fan and flowers, curtsied so low that one, nay, both of her breasts almost popped out of her gown beneath her glittering emeralds. And she thanked the audience most warmly for their golden-hearted generosity. Thank you most warmly for your golden-hearted generosity. A lot of drunks will be very happy tonight as a result of your charity. And as the audience went out into the still warm summer's night, they fell over a few of them underneath the arches. Lestrade had told himself he wouldn't go to the after-show party, but Letitia had insisted he be there. There were some wonderful people he just had to meet. Actually, he'd met Gilbert, Sullivan and Wilde before, and hadn't really cared for the experience. The one he hadn't met was Trevelyan Cavendish, the leading man. Charmed. I'm sure you are. Five and nine. Plays merry hell with my crow's feet, if I had any, that is. So, you're a friend of Harry and the teachers, are you? Up for the season? No, I live here. Ah, a townhouse. Where? Pimlico. Where? Pimlico. Ah, yes, that's what I thought you said. Oscar, Oscar, how was I tonight? Good isn't the word, Valley. I've never seen you cover your fluffs better. Is Bosie here? The little darling promised me, and I've seen no sign of the young rapscallion. Boys, eh? Sholto, how are things at the yard? Murder. You were very good tonight, young Harry. Was I? I say that's awfully decent of you. Have you got a drink? Actually, it's a bit near the knuckle, this, isn't it? Dear old Eveline raising funds for the inebriated, and here we are, drowning in champagne. Verve Clicquot. Thanks. Letitia was good, too. Wasn't she, though? Haven't seen you two since Manchester. Settled in a bandic at all? Oh, Nanny Balsam's got us organised, as always. Abianto. Well, Harry, nice of you to invite me, but I really must be... <coughs> but Charlotte Lestrade never finished his sentence. There was an ear-piercing scream that seemed to come from the stage. Someone dropped their glass, much to the disgust of Lord Ferrers, to whom such waste was sacrilege itself. The murmurs in the green room stopped, and there was an eerie stillness. Lestrade was the first to seize the moment. He stuffed an inedible canopy into a handy jardiniere and made for the heavy velvet curtain. It was particularly unfortunate that when he wrestled it aside, he was staring at a blank wall from which the peeling paint hung in tatters. Over here! Lestrade slid smoothly to his left. He ducked through a doorway, partially screened by painted flats, 
and was out onto the stage. The sulphur lights along its front edge were still lit. Beyond them was the blackness of an empty auditorium. But in front of them, his body, twisted and jackknifed in agony, lay all that was left of Trevelyan Cavendish. Good Lord! Looks like he's dead. Won't be the first time he's died on stage. Someone call the police! I am the police. Now, where's the manager? No one leaves the building. Everybody. Everybody. Everybody! Mr. Wilde, stay calm. By Lestrade's order, the body was left where it was. The only man the inspector could trust on the spur of the moment was Harry Bandicoot, so he sent him running in search of a copper. By midnight, the Adelphi was ringed by police, and while the cast and guests, irritated by the enforced incarceration, fumed and ruminated in the green room, Lestrade set about the grisly business in hand. He stripped off the infuriating tail coat and loosened his white tie. He knelt beside the contorted body of the leading man, who looked for all the world as if he'd taken a spear in his stomach, his knees drawn up tightly against his chest. Lestrade lifted the dead man's right eyelid. The pupil was tiny, like a pinprick in the dull eye. His scarred lips were livid, matching his ears, and his left hand still clutched convulsively at his throat. The inspector bent towards the twisted face, and his nostrils twitched. He rocked back on his heels, gazing out into the darkened theatre. There was no laughter now, no thunderous applause, just the slow, measured tread of the constable walking the corridor that ran the length of the stage behind the curtain. Lestrade squeezed his way through the dimly lit passages until he'd reached the manager's office. Mr. Dysart, I shall need this room. We've seen nothing like this since Lady Bottinger's revenge. It'll be all over tomorrow's papers. If you'd asked me, I would have said Trevelyan was the picture of health. He probably was. Somebody killed him. What? But I thought... Yes? And what did you think, Mr. Dysart? I, I thought he had a heart attack. I thought the police were a mere formality. What with the celebrities present here tonight? Oh, my God! Ruin! Ruin! All right, calm yourself, Mr. Dysart. We've had enough hysterics at one night. How is Mr. Wilde, by the way? Oh, he's had a few absinths. He's holding his own. That's a relief. How well did you know the deceased? Trevelyan, one of my oldest and dearest friends. You mean... Scarcely at all. We managers of theatres can't become over-close, Mr. Lestrade. It doesn't do. Actors are a peculiar lot. They all have their peccadilloes. Oh, I've heard. Tell me, was Mr. Cavendish married... Uh, next of kin and so on. Only to the theatre. He was tipped to be the next Henry Irving, you know. As for next of kin, he was related to the trees. A minor branch, of course. I'm afraid Trevelyan wasn't the most popular of men, Inspector. Greatness rears enemies, I'm afraid. Many's the row I've just happened to overhear at rehearsals. This is a murder inquiry, Mr Dysart. I shall need the full particulars. Yes, yes, of course, well, he and Nellie didn't hit it off. Nellie? Dame Ellen Roborough, the leading lady. Oh. And what was the cause of their rows? What it always is with thespians. It's all about the limelight, you see. Who has top billing? Who has his or her name above the show's title on the programme? Well, 
it looks as though Trevelyan got centre stage after all, doesn't it? Off stage, Dame Ellen Robra loomed larger than she did on it. Her immense bosoms, rounded out by years of operatic breathing, would have been quite intimidating to a copper of less experience than Lestrade. As it was, he took them both in his stride. I gather you didn't care for the late Mr Cavendish. Didn't care is rather a namby-pamby way of putting it, Inspector. I hated him. Enough to kill him? Possibly, although I should have thought his fans were already doing that. I'm sorry? Trevelyan was 48, Mr Lestrade. Obviously a man of your training would have discerned that already. In our profession, Inspector, that's not just over the hill. That's down the bottom of the next valley. Trevelyan's career was over. Mr Dysart seemed to think he'd be the next Henry Irving. Well, there you are. Tell me, Dame Ellen, was Mr Cavendish attached? Only to himself. You've seen his dressing room, have you? Not yet. There are mirrors on the ceilings. Always very proud of his head of hair was Trevelyan. Always did his own, you know. Is that unusual? Mr Lestrade, in our profession, it's unheard of. I have not handled a single hair of my own coiffure since September 1886. But, of course, I was a slip of a girl then. What did you row about? Row? Hardly that. I merely told Trevelyan what I thought of him. Conceited, inferior, with all the talent of an escritoire. Oh, come now, Dane Ellen. What did you really think of Trevelyan Cavendish? If you must know, I thought it was delightful when he died. Quite the best thing he's ever done. I shall, of course, weep buckets at his funeral and express my objection to any reporter who beats a path to my door. I assume the objectionable misfit was murdered. He was, madam. Wild. Pardon? Oscar Wilde. There's your man, if man is the right word. Why? Ask him, Inspector. But if I were you, I'd keep my back to the wall at all times. <laughs> We've met before, Mr. Wilde. We have? At the Cadogan Hotel. Must be two years ago. The Cadogan? What was I doing there? Having a drink with Lord Alfred Douglas, if my memory serves. The Marquess of Rulesbury's Queen, you mean? No, I'm very cross with Bosey. He promised me faithfully he'd be here tonight. Did you know the deceased, Mr. Wilde? Cavendish? Yes. Rather a poseur, wasn't he? Oh, you didn't like him? Good heavens, no. A vain peacock of a man who struts his hour upon the stage. And there's a rumour he did his own hair. Whereas you... Monsieur Maurice, the King's Road. The way he teases each girl would bring tears to your eyes, Mr... Um... Lestrade. Quite. No. Maurice is an artiste, an aesthete of the first water, unlike Trevelyan, who is neither. Tell me, Mr. Wilde, had you... Uh, that is, did you... <clears throat> You and Mr. Cavendish. I don't know what rumours you've heard, Inspector, but let me put your mind at rest. I'm a lover of youth and beauty. Cavendish had neither. Dame Ellen has just confided in me that he was murdered. Well, that's despicable, of course, but worse crimes happen every day. Bosie's father split an infinitive last Thursday. I had to lie down. Really? No. Take my advice, Mr. Lestrade, and uh, cherchez l'homme. Uh... The particular home I had in mind is that rather shy young man with the astonishing pectorals who dropped Trevelyan's cloak in the second act. Harry Bandicoot? Exactly. I met him at rehearsals this afternoon when I did my customary lap of honour and deciding on whose lap I would sit tonight. He was surprisingly diffident for an actor. Wouldn't tell me who he was at first. Imagine, 
A lovey who dare not speak his name. Very odd. Perhaps that was because he had met you before as well, Mr. Wilde. Really? What a very small world. Where was this? The Cadogan Hotel. Good heavens, man. I don't remember going there once. Never mind twice. This was the same occasion, sir. Mr. Bandicoot was on the force then with me. Oh, how appalling. What is? That this Bandicoot is a bent copper. Whatever next? To be continued. In Exit Centre Stage, A Yarn of the Yard by M.J. Trove, the narrator was Kenneth Kendall and the cast was as follows. Inspector Lestrade, Reginald Marsh. Sir Arthur Sullivan, Bernard Meacher. William Gilbert, Michael Shear. Oscar Wilde, Peter Lewis. Lady Eveline Ferrers, Barbara Walton. Trevelyan Cavendish, Ronald Good. Harry Bandicoot, James Pellow. Letitia Bandicoot, Carol Glover. Dysart, My Troll. Dame Ellen, Rosalind Alloway. Lord Ferrers, Ronald Good. The series produced by Michael Sheard. Studio direction by Dennis Chubb and Samantha Seaton Clark. There you go. Big thank you to Pete for letting me play this. You know what I mean? Pete, thank you so much. And all again ties in lovely with the run up to Amy H. Sturgis and this live video broadcast that we're going to do as well. So if you're interested in that, please, we'd love to see you over there as well. That would be fantastic. That would make my idea. Next up is Movie Soundtracks with David Raiklin. David! Hello, everybody. Welcome to Sci-Fi Soundtrack. This is where we explore the expanding universe of science fiction music, sound effects, and the amazing stories and creative people behind the scenes. I'm your host, David Raiklin. Thanks to Tony for making the show possible. We're glad to be aboard the Starship. This time we're going to listen to two soundtracks, one that's high-tech and edgy, the other that's orchestral and melodic. Interestingly, the high-tech, edgy one was an innovative film from 1951 called The Day the Earth Stood Still. Perhaps more than any other film, it's responsible for creating the classic techno sci-fi sound with the ululating theremin and clusters in the orchestra and processing of all the sounds so they sound alien and from another world. This seems very logical, but at the time, it was a very bold move on the part of Bernard Herrmann. You can just tell from the kind of instruments that he used. Not one, but two theremins. Not one, but three vibraphones. Three electric organs programmed in unusual ways. Tape reversals, phase shifting, all kinds of techniques that we tend to think of as being from at the earliest, the 1960s, more likely the, the 70s, but here he was doing it in 1951 at 20th Century Fox. They actually have recordings of those recording sessions, and it's very interesting to listen to how they did it. They didn't have click tracks. They didn't have headphone monitors. Everybody had to play in the same room. And the effect is utterly thrilling, unique. Even if you don't think you've heard it before, you've heard the opening theme to The Day the Earth Stood Still.
an excerpt from the original soundtrack recording to The Day the Earth Stood Still, Prelude and Outer Space. It has such a distinctive sound. It really puts you in that 50s sci-fi world instantly, and I'm convinced that this recording, this film, is why we associate those vibrating electronics, the theremin sound, as being sci-fi soundtracks not only from the 50s, but from any era. And it's easy to make fun of, but it's very hard to do so well. And here it is in the re-recording that Bernard Herrmann did in London with the Philharmonia Orchestra, Outer Space. Outer Space, the main title from The Day the Earth Stood Still by Bernard Herrmann. Now let's move to the next major cue, called Radar. The alien ship is descending and air traffic is following it on radar. And we have a theme that's a great contrast from the epic brass and pulsing electronics. Now we have very quick piano and subtle electronics. Gives a great sense of forward motion. Radar, from the original soundtrack to The Day the Earth Stood Still. The interesting contrast between the epic orchestral cue where you're sailing through space and now the ship is entering the atmosphere, we go from the big orchestra to piano, which sounds more isolated. But the power is there because there's like three or four pianos playing together. And we still have the electronics, but now they're soft. So a kind of... Uh, bringing down to Earth of the alien atmosphere. Also interesting, I may have not mentioned earlier that there is an electric violin, an electric cello, and an electric bass here. Again, way ahead of its time. That kind of instrumentation seems more like it would be from the 80s or even from the 21st century. Here's one of my favorite cues. It's called Space Control. And this is music for the interior of the alien spacecraft. And it's light and mysterious, almost, uh, well, it is otherworldly. And we also have uh, a solo from the electric guitar, as well as uh, bells and glockenspiel 
who chimes all kinds of uh, tinkling magical instruments that are used with processing to create an otherworldly effect. Space control. Space Control, music for the alien spacecraft in The Day the Earth Stood Still, and featuring the theremin, a strange, vibrating, almost soprano-like voice of electronics that was invented in the 1920s, but seldom used, because it's difficult to play. You literally produce the sound by waving your hands in the air. You're in an electrical field is generated by this pole and by moving your hands closer and farther away you change the capacitance and that allows the electronics to change the volume and pitch and you can get melodies expression it's a real unique sound but it's so hard to play that it's more often imitated than actual instrument itself here we're sometimes listening to a moog synthesizer imitating that sound but it's still got a very unique character to it and I think that's one of the, the legacies of this score, is the, the sound of the theremin. Another is a whole vocabulary, as we've talked about, of uh, blending electronics and processing with uh, orchestral music. Here's a seldom-heard cue from the uh, 2002 re-recording, Departure. This music is from the end of the film, when the alien is preparing to leave Earth after delivering his message of peace. This actually was re-recorded in 2002 by my friend John McNeely in London. They captured the atmosphere of the original recording with modern technology. Soundscapes that really could fit in a movie from any era. It's timeless music. There's duets between the electric violin and the theremin and the electric organ that are just unique sounds. And there's an overall sense of uh, eerie mystery that's just wonderful. Departure. Departure from The Day the Earth Stood Still, a score that, in Bernard Herrmann's words, defined the shape of things to come in science fiction scores. Let's hear a little bit of Bernard Herrmann on film music. I think that music is part of cinema. It's an art form that's involved with, the, uh, with vision, with the image, and the ear. And uh, it's my own, after spending much of my life in it, that there have been more contributions made to music 
in its growth in the 20th century through the cinema than any other. That was Bernard Herrmann talking about the role of music in film. Now let's turn to a contemporary composer, Nettie John Cross, who's done a fantastic job with a recent science fiction thriller called Humanity's End. Let's listen to the incredibly melodic and richly orchestral main title. The main title to Humanity's End by Nettie John Cross. That first name is N-E-D-Y. It's his first film score, and what a fabulous job. The story is set 800 years in the future, where humanity is threatened by an alien race that's determined to wipe them out, but the human race has already evolved into separate branches with different cyborg abilities. So it's uh, kind of a far-out dystopian sci-fi future with giant robots and space battles, yet here is this beautiful epic melodic music that fits perfectly. I think it shows that orchestral scores and melodic writing really do still work, even for the most far-out sci-fi concepts and for a low-budget film, or indie science fiction film of 2009. Let's hear another track. This one is Death and Hope, and again, gorgeous melodies that are used throughout the picture. song-like Contessa's theme from Humanity's End. Nettie began his career in music as a rock star in Europe, and you can see that he has a, a gift for melody. Again, let's turn to action music and the march for the Nephilim, the evil alien race. March of the Nephilim.
much of the Nephilim, appropriately grandiose and evil, from humanity's end. Now let's have an interview, an exclusive, with the composer himself, Nettie John Cross. How did you get started in film? I started in film maybe for two years, yes, with, with the movie Humanity's End. The film director, Neil Johnson, came to Bulgaria and, and asked me if I could write the music for Humanity's End, and I agree. You've written beautiful melodies, but it's fashionable to use sound effects. What do you think of that? Using sound effects with melodies together, it's okay. But only sound effects, it's not, not, not really my style. It's very important to have a very good melody and very good musicians. Where did you record the soundtrack? In Pazajik in Bulgaria, we, we, we recorded. We have a very good team here and we record the movie here in, in the studio. The score sounds very big. How many musicians did you have? A full orchestra? We are only 17 people, and with 17 people we, we recorded many times. The strings recorded 25 times, like a big orchestra, you know, the, the choirs. I recorded with Mira 100 times, you know, I think it sounds great. It sounds like a real, real, real big orchestra. You mentioned a, a, a soprano. Are there any uh, special musicians that you you like to work with that maybe you've played with for years? Yes, my whole team. I like my whole team. I, I, I love the people in my team. Oh. Did you use any unusual instruments or orchestration? I combinate the didgeridoo with a cello, you know, and I have a very big sound. Wow, I thought that was electronic, but you did it live. We look forward to hearing many scores from you in, in the future. Uh, ah, yeah, that's correct. That's yeah. what, that's what uh, I think you, you have a, a new project, Fable. Yes, I'm ready with this, yes. Excellent. We'll look for that one as well. Looking forward to more music from Nettie John Cross. That's it for Science Fiction Soundtrack this week. We'll be back next time. We do take requests, so tell us your favorite science fiction fantasy video game, TV, soundtracks, and we will play it for you. And I'll find out the inside scoop so you know why it's magic. Contact me, David Raiklin, at cinematicmusic1 at gmail.com. Be sure to check out my blog at www.davidraiklen.com. Music and interviews copyright their respective owners. David, what can I say? Thank you very much, sir. Do look out as well. We're going to be having a bit of a music-themed video workshop as well coming up soon. So that is Starship Sofa's 220. Do you hope you enjoyed it? Again, just referring back to the Metacast and you know everything that kind of went on with that. What? It's like... I love doing that show because, honestly, I have just been inundated with emails and, you know, ideas and everything. It's been, it's been such an exciting week. After that, you know, again, you just sit there and you just kind of talk your talk about how you're feeling. And, you know, and again, emails with, you know, regarding kind of me, me kind of anxieties and things like that. You know, other people have been through some dark times. I mean, I'm not saying my anxiety is a dark time. It's in pain in the arse sometimes. You know, there's people out there being through a lot more bloody hell, God. And just being able to do the show and get someone to write in and say, Tony, you helped us through a bit of a dark patch. Oh, man. 
Do you know what I mean? That's like I said last week on that show. That just means so much. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's gut-wrenching how it kind of affects me. Do you know what I mean? Just to think what we do here as a little community, what we kind of do and the excitement we get from doing this show. And then, you know, it's just worth it so much. You know what I mean? So thank you once again. And... <laughs> I wish I had a pound for every email that said, hey, to shame about the volume three. But, like, the donations as well that's come through from that Meta Show. Do you know what I mean? Wow. What can you say? What can you say? i tell you what I can say is we're going to change the method on the Starship Sofa. Do you know what I mean? Just if you want, if you go to the front of the website, you will see now we've got the subscription donations up there as well and that would be lovely if you just could you know think about donating to the sofa there's the one-time donation and then there's three values you can donate on like in a monthly basis and it's just like you know with the donations like the monthly basis what do you get <laughs> you just get me you get it free anyways you know what i mean i'm kind of putting the time and effort in and it's just nice if someone's there supporting the show and that'll just keep that bedrock going that'll be fantastic don't forget as well Mentioned on the Meta Show, Tales to Terrify, coming on the 13th of January. Pop over there and subscribe to the show. Larry Santuro is going to be the host of that. You know what I mean? What can you say? Fantastic. We're going to start off there with a story and just build it up. And it's going to have fact articles coming as well. We're getting a fact article. We're going to have a monthly fact article by Andy Remick, UK horror science fiction writer there, and Mike Allen as well, who's done a few narrations for Starships over. Remember that story he wrote, The Button Bin? Mike, you know what I mean? Great voice as well. Mike's going to do a, a story, or do a fact article over on Tales to Terrify. couple more writers that have kind of signed up to the cause and given some stories too, Starships over. Bruce Sterling, there you go. New story by Bruce Sterling. And a writer who I've been trying to get for, Oodles of Time, Gregory Benford, has given us a couple of stories as well. So... More more to come. Listen out for news on Starship Sofa with the writers we're getting as well. Like I say, thank you so much for just listening to the show. Do you know what I mean? That's humbling enough. You know, Thank you so much. Thank you for being a part of Starship Sofa. Whether you're just listening. Do you know what I mean? Where you're just kind of listening away and that's all you do. Big thumbs up to you. Big thank you. If you donated and you've been kind enough to the show, amazing. Do you know what I mean? If you've kind of contributed to the show... What can I say? 2012 is going to be such an exciting time. You know, there's since that Meta Show, I've had umpteen little kind of ideas for fact articles, some some huge on a grand scale, some just little, and you think that's just hits the nail on the head. You know, so look out for things to come in 2012. Exciting year for Starship Sova. Remember the Hugos? You know, don't worry. You know, don't say, don't worry, don't forget. You know, if you want to nominate, we're fantastic. Until next week, just like to say, good day from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1.